if you have a Bible, um, turn with me to Mark's Gospel that we're working our way through. If you don't, there's uh, some at the back on your left-hand side. Feel free to go and get one. Mark chapter 10. I'm just going to read a few verses from today's reading. Mark chapter 10, verse 17. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not give false testimony. Do not defraud or honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. So we're working our way through, through Mark's gospel. We've come to approximately the halfway point in Jesus' journey as Mark describes it to us. And Jesus is talking more and more now about the most crucial, uh, central part of his mission, the kingdom of God. And this encounter was an important one. You can find this story in uh, Matthew's gospel, in Mark, and in Luke's, and described pretty much exactly the same way. So this is, this is really important. This is really central to God's message, to Jesus' message, um, both to the people then and to us today. This was not a, a side issue. It wasn't a, a sort of caveat it wasn't just an interesting uh, thing dropped in there. This is something that's really important for us. And of course, we, we've talked a lot about the kingdom here. We talk about it very regularly, and you may describe how we've, you may remember how we've described it before. Uh, Jesus uses lots of metaphors, lots of stories to describe the kingdom. Um, but as a simple person, I tend to forget all those, and I just want a simple definition. So for me, the simplest and, and, and arguably the best definition of the kingdom of God is this. The kingdom of God is where God is king. That's what I sort of remember. Kingdom of God is where God is king. And Jesus here tells this man that the kingdom is hard to enter if our hearts are not aligned to the kings. The kingdom is hard to enter if our hearts are not aligned, aligned to the kings. And what is the heart of the king? To make a stand and defend the poor. That's what Jesus is saying to him. So the kingdom of God is where God is king. And, and here we are in, in London 2013 living in another kingdom called the United Kingdom. Now, <clears throat> you may have one of these. Um, that's my passport, okay? My passport says certain things about me and about this kingdom. So in the back, beside a picture of a handsome chap, it says, um, it says that I'm British. It says that I'm born in a, in a certain time, in a certain place, and it confirms my citizenship as a member of this kingdom, okay? And in the front, it says other certain things. It says, Her I don't know if you've ever read this. Her Britannic Majesty's Secretary of State requests and requires in the name of Her Majesty, obviously written by a diplomat, all those whom it may concern to allow the bearer to pass freely without let or hindrance and to afford the bearer such assistance and protection as may be necessary. Well, that's all right then, isn't it? <laughs> Nothing's ever going to go wrong then. It says I'm a British citizen. It says I'm born in Britain. It says that I have citizenship of this country. And in the front, it says those words. In theory, this passport tries to assure me 
that because my name is in it, because my picture is in it, I'm protected by my king, or in our case, the queen, and guaranteed some benefits by it. So I have the benefits of the membership of the kingdom with certain rights. I have a right to protection. I have a right to health care. I have a right to legal protection. I have a right to freedom of speech. And I can call myself British. Or if I like, Scottish. For which pleasure next year I will get a new passport, I hope. <clears throat> but in order to bear this passport, there's some expectations put upon me. Expectations about how I will act. How I will treat others. How I will obey the laws of the land. Holding a passport says something both about the citizen and about the country of citizenship. I remember being in, in China three years before uh, Hong Kong was handed back, and I met a lady on a train who just had got one of these, her first one, and she was so excited because of what it meant to her, because she had her British citizenship before it was too late, and she held on to it as if it was something very dear, and of course to her it was. And when I go through passport control, this says certain things. It has certain impact. When I, went through, when I went to Nigeria, this was really helpful. I got through passport control faster because I had a British passport. When I was in Afghanistan, I kept that hidden in my pocket. It says something quite different having a British passport there. The citizenship we have affects our legal status, and by association, it attempts to say something about who we are. And this guy that we encounter in Mark's Gospel claimed to want a new passport. He came to Jesus saying that he wanted to belong. He wanted to have the protection of the king, to know God, and to be sure of eternal life. And of course, he came to the right man. It was his passport application. Now, I guess most of us here at some point have filled in at least one of those brown forms. The ones where if you get it slightly wrong, one letter out, it could put in jeopardy your holiday. This man had filled in the form, but he hadn't filled in all the boxes. He couldn't fill in the whole thing. He wanted citizenship of the kingdom, but he wasn't prepared to hand over his full allegiance and follow the kingdom rules. He'd got most of the form filled in. He was following the commandments. He wasn't a murderer. He honored his parents. He didn't steal, but he wasn't prepared to fully sign up to the cost of citizenship. He wanted to follow the king but he didn't want to follow the king. If you see what I mean. Jane, can you just put the picture up on the screen? Does anybody know where that is? Edinburgh Castle. A bit of a subtle theme going on under the, under the surface here today. <laughs> you might have noticed. Does anybody know who those two characters are? Great, Tim. <laughs> Fortunately, they are. Could you guess who these characters are? Right, so well, let's start on the other side. On the left-hand side, this picture's the same, I don't know why I'm pointing to one side or the other. On the left-hand side is a chap called William Wallace. Yeah, William Wallace. Great chap. And on the other side, on the right-hand side, is Robert the Bruce, King Robert the Bruce. A hero for all the right reasons. He was a warrior, he was a revolutionary, he was a king. And he had the love and the commitment of his closest men around him. But just before he died in 1330, he said this, he said, after I'm dead, I want you to take my heart, I want you to embalm it, and I want you to carry it into battle. I want you to carry my heart into battle. Now, a knight called James Douglas did that. 
after Robert the Bruce died shortly after, took his heart, embalmed it, put it around his neck, and he carried it into battle. And a short while later, he was, uh, he was in Spain with some of his men, and they got into a battle, and they got separated from the main army and found themselves outnumbered 20 to 1. Facing imminent and sure death, James Douglas pulled off the heart, threw it into the midst of the, of, of, of the enemy, and shouted, Fight for the heart of your king! Fight for the heart of your king. And as kingdom people, as citizens of this kingdom, we will want to fight for the heart of our king. But in order to fight for the heart of your king, you have to know what your king's heart is. We need to know our king's heart. We need to wear it around our necks. And we need to be prepared to go into battle, ready to fight for it. Now this chap, we don't know much about this chap. Uh, the story is called The Rich Young Ruler. So what we know, he was rich, he was young, he was a man. Not much more. In today's terms, that means that statistically, he was probably a white Western male. He had a house, a car, and a job. Let's be uh, as bold as to say that he was in the top 1% of earners at the time, because it said he was very rich. Um, that means, in today's terms, that globally speaking, he was earning £26,200 a year. Okay? That's what makes him 1% of the richest people in the world, £26,200 a year. He was clearly religious. He sought out Jesus. He wanted to be sure of eternal life. So he'd be a churchgoer, right? A religious sort. I think today, if he was alive, he'd have been quite happy sitting here amongst us. He'd have felt quite comfortable in his status, in his place. So his question that he asks is quite relevant. It's not ridiculous for us to consider. However, you and I know that he asks the wrong question, doesn't he? You don't go to Jesus and ask, what must I do? You don't ask, what action do I have to complete to get acceptance with God? Now, we know in St. Paul's that you ask different questions. You ask, who must I follow? How can I be more like Jesus? In fact, it reminds me of that story of the youth leader, the classic story. The youth leader at Easter, he's standing in front of the group of children. And he says, kids, what's brown, fluffy, hops along, and has big ears. And he looks at them all. And little Jimmy at the back tentatively puts up his hand. Yes, Jimmy, what's the answer? And Jimmy says, well, I know the answer's Jesus, but it sounds a lot like a bunny rabbit to me. So it must be that we would conclude that Jesus has got it all wrong. Jesus makes a mistake. We know that what Jesus should have done is he should have sat this guy down over a latte got a, a John Ortberg book or a, or a Rick Warren DVD and said, friend, you've got it wrong. You don't have to earn my acceptance. You don't have to do anything. Just be more like me. Follow me, be loving, and trust in me. And yet, despite this chap getting the question all wrong, Jesus, of course, hasn't got it wrong at all. Go. Sell everything you have and give to the poor. But Jesus, I'm asking you about my internal security. I'm asking you about, 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 about my relationship with God. I'm asking about the ever after. Let, let's, let's deal with the poor in chapter 2. Let's do it in a, in a post-alpha course. Let's talk about it in life group instead. 
But Jesus says no. And we can't escape the fact that Jesus asked him to do something. Now, Chris mentioned uh, Tuesday night, the, mission, the, the vision night. And if you weren't there, the talk is it's not yet on the website, but hopefully it'll be up there very soon. Um, Mark was talking about Mark 28, where Jesus says, go, go into all the world and make disciples. And Mark stopped on this word, go. The fact that Jesus used an imperative, a call to action, a requirement, go into all the world and make disciples. And it's the same with this encounter. It's the same word that Jesus uses, go, do something. Now, I realize that this challenges Jesus' heart, especially when we talk about those we've never met, perhaps never will meet, might be very remote from us, either socially or geographically, or both. And in this room, every week, are people, you and me, full of struggles and burdens and stresses and problems and difficulties. We know that's true. So how can we struggle with other people's burdens? See, what the Bible tells us from start to finish is that God's currency is different. In God's currency, having peace and fulfillment and wholeness in our lives and reaching out and making a difference to the poorest in our world are inextricably linked. If we reach out and make a difference, the blessings come to us. And if we want to know peace and fulfillment, we need to speak into other people's lives. You can't separate them. In Jesus' day, community pretty much meant the village or the nearby communities um, in that area of Galilee. In our day, we live in a global community, a global village. You can tweet about a problem somewhere else in the world before the local media even knows about it. You can comment on Facebook about situations you'll never be part of. Back in May in this service, I led prayers via Skype from Africa. Mark, today, at this moment, is on a plane on the village to Ogungora in Uganda. Our community is no longer limited by how far we can walk in a day. Our community is the world, both local and far away. But it's not just about what we can know, it's also about how we live. How I choose to live my life and use resources in Ealing today affects communities in Bangladesh. How I choose my leaders and hold them to account affects the situation in Mali. What I buy when I go to Tesco or Sainsbury's has an impact on farmers in Honduras. We are not isolated from the impacts on the people around our world. And God is quite clear to us that caring for the poor is part of his community. Do you know, I grew up um, in my church life not talking about this. Somehow it wasn't in the Bible that I, was, that I grew up with. And yet the more I read the Bible, the more I realize that that was not the Christian faith that God called me to. In Luke 11, he tells the Pharisees, if they care for the poor, then they can be whole. In Luke 14, he tells his followers, invite the poor into your homes, and then you will be blessed. And in Luke 19, Jesus declares that salvation has come to the house of Zacchaeus after he's promised to give back his wealth to the poor. God's heart is for the poor. It's not his philanthropic side. He doesn't have a corporate social responsibility department. It's not a side thing that he looks to do just to keep himself occupied. He is totally 100% for the poor, and you cannot read the Bible without seeing that. Especially, you cannot read how passionate he is through the prophets. 
in Malachi 3.10, perhaps one of my favorite verses in the Bible, God tells his people this. He says, if you bring into my storehouse your completed tithe for distribution to the poor, then see if I will not lean out of heaven and pour out on you so many blessings you will never be able to use them all up. Bring into my storehouse your tithe, and then I will pour out the blessings on you. So Jesus wasn't saying anything new to this man, nor to us through this encounter. But here's the thing. Jesus wasn't after his money. God didn't need his wealth because God is not poor. God is not poor. In Psalm 50, verse 9, it says this. I have no need of a bull from your stalls or goats from your pens. Translate that into your own language today. For every animal of the forest is mine and the cattle of a thousand hills. I know every bird in the mountains and the insects in the field are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world is mine and all that is in it. When Jesus asked this man to sell everything he had and give to the poor, this wasn't an issue of the wallet. This was an issue of the heart. The heart of the man following the heart of the king. And in verse 21, Jesus brings the challenge right home and says, One thing you lack, go, sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. And I think we read that passage in one way, but I think Jesus meant it in another. Because Jesus is not talking about the poor. Jesus is talking about the man's wealth. This man, no doubt, would have known that there was poverty around him. There was lots of poverty then, just as there is today. He couldn't not have known. So Jesus is not recognizing whether, is, is not questioning whether he recognized the poor in the world. The question is whether he recognized the wealth in his pocket. There are seven billion people in the world today. And last night, one in eight of them went to bed hungry. And that is preventable. Because there is enough resource in our world to feed everyone. Just not, not enough will. When Jesus asked him if he would take his wealth and use it to meet the needs of the poor, to have the heart of the king, this man said, no. And he went away sad. He was very religious. He knew all the right words. He'd been to church. He'd obeyed all the commandments. But you and I will never meet him because his application was rejected. He came to Jesus, but coming to Jesus was not enough. Jesus said, go. And we can come. And we have come. And we come and we worship and we pray and we meet one another. And that's great, and that's a starting place. And then Jesus says, go. Chris was um, mentioning that as a church, we are committed to reaching out to the poor. We already do so in both this community and, and wider field. That's why we have choices. That's why we have CAP. That's why we're involved in the soup kitchen. That's why we do the language school. That's why this morning Mark's on his way with Tearfront to Uganda. And that's why this church this year is supporting the IF campaign. And I just want to talk about the IF campaign shortly uh, for the rest of uh, this time.
You may have heard about it on the media or in the press, or maybe not yet, but you will. Long phrase is, enough food for everyone if. Hundred organizations have joined together in the media, sorry, 100 organizations joined together to ask the UK government to make this year's G8 meeting really count, to say there is enough food in the world for everyone if, if certain things. And this is what we're going to be doing as a church this year. This is what we're going to be focusing on, starting from today and building up towards June on the G8 and then onwards. And there's four things that the IF campaign is speaking out about. Jane, if you can just go to those four things. Thank you. Firstly, it's to ask the UK to deliver on its promise to give 0.7 of a percent, just 0.7 of a percent of GDP towards reducing poverty, a small uh, percentage for a huge, huge effect, and the government isn't doing that yet. Secondly, to stop land grabs, where companies take land from farmers which should be used for food, but then often use it to grow biofuels to sustain our lives in the West. Thirdly, the campaign is asking governments about tax, to get com companies to working in poor countries to pay the tax in those countries where they work for the benefit of the poor there. They often don't. And fourthly, for transparency, the governments and corporations are more transparent in how their actions impact communities, especially in regard to food availability in those countries, so that they can be held to account. Now, these are complex issues. Nobody denies that they are, or not. They are complex issues, and there are big questions behind them. I'd love to you know, talk to anybody who's got some of those questions and wants to talk to, to me about them. But we as a church are going to support this campaign this year with many, many other organizations, um, and it will build up over the next few months. God's Word says this in Isaiah 10. Woe to those who make unjust laws, to those who issue oppressive decrees, to deprive the poor of their rights and withhold justice from the oppressed of my people, making widows their prey and robbing the fatherless. What will you do on the day of reckoning? Of course, the poor are everywhere. The poor are in our community, the poor are in our doorsteps, the poor are in Ealing, in Hanwell, in Brentford, in Hounslow, in all the areas that we live here. And there's poor in, 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 in all different areas of society, whether it's physically poor, mentally poor, spiritually poor, socially poor. And we as a church, we want to reach out to all of those. But this year in particular, we have a special opportunity in this country because the G8 is coming here in June, because we have the chairmanship of it. We have an opportunity to be part of change, to take the heart of God and say, we're going to fight for the heart of our king. And if your passport says, kingdom of God on it, if you're a citizen of the kingdom of God, then I hope you want to be a citizen and act as a citizen of the kingdom of God. I hope you want to be part of this. This morning, we have managed to get hold of um, some of the initial campaign cards for the IF campaign. This says, Dear Prime Minister, the world produces enough food for everyone, but not everyone has enough to eat. One in eight people across the globe are hungry. But if Wilberforce could end the slave trade, why can't we be the generation to confront the big if of hunger? And so it goes on. I'd like to encourage you to fill one of these in. They're going to be going around in the baskets at the end. Um, and if you're happy to, fill it in. Um, and I guarantee these will go with thousands and thousands of others back to number 10. 
um, to ask the, gov the, the, the government to make a change this year. And for the first 20 of you, I will even give you one of the official IF bracelets. Free of charge, I've managed to get hold of. But more importantly, I want to encourage you to get involved. It's not just about money. It's about our hearts, following the heart of God. It's about being informed. It's about asking the questions. It's about following what's happening. It's about making a difference. You can give, you can campaign, you can pray. But let's get involved. Every 15 seconds, a child dies from hunger. Two million a year from preventable hunger. But Jesus was very clear to the rich young man. He said, take what you have and do something to make a difference. That's the heart of our king. That's the heart that we want to follow. That's the fight that we want to be part of. And that's what we're going to be doing this year. Would you stand with me? We'll pray. And then